Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Today we look at verses 17 to 24 in Luke chapter 10. We'll begin by reading this passage together. And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning falling from heaven. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you, notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. And he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. The passage says the 70 returned again. They returned from this evangelistic outing in which their Lord has sent them and in which they've been exercising their preaching gifts. It's one of the first occasions in which Jesus delegates the preaching of the gospel to others. He has himself preached his own gospel in various cities and villages in Galilee and Judea, but now he begins to deploy others to speak in his name. So they've been exercising their gifts, and it says the 70 returned again, and it says they returned again with joy. And I think this passage today highlights an important contrast between what has been called the joy of preaching and what I would like to call this morning the preacher's greatest joy. Early in my ministry, I came across a book by Phillips Brooks, the man who wrote The Christmas Carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Phillips Brooks was an Episcopal minister in uh, Massachusetts. He was the man who first encountered Helen Keller and uh, asked her if she knew Jesus. He was telling her about Jesus, and you've probably heard the story that Helen Keller said, I know him. I know him. I just didn't know his name, indicating that before the preacher reached Helen Keller, the Lord had already written something in her heart. But that was Phillips Brooks. Phillips Brooks wrote a book in 1877 called The Joy of Preaching. And I came across that book early in my ministry and uh, read bits and pieces of it, and I'm sure profited from it a good bit. It has a good reputation. The Joy of Preaching. And you know, throughout 40 plus years of pastoral ministry, I understand that preaching is a wonderful privilege. And there are times when it has been a very joyful experience for me. There are times when I feel that the Lord has blessed me and just flows naturally and I'm able to communicate 
and I feel the power of God and the presence of God, and I say, oh, preaching is so much fun. It's wonderful. <laughs> the joy of preaching. But you know, more often than not, as the years go by, I realize that my performance in the pulpit is not as sterling as I once thought that it was. You may know that I listen to more than a dozen sermons each week as I edit sermons and try to play them for the benefit of others on our internet platform. And then I listen to my own sermons. And I have to tell you that to the longer I go, the more I realize that pulpit performance is not always at the level that I wish that it was. I see so many faults and flaws. I realize that there is much room for improvement. And many people are very kind when I say things like that and say, oh, no, no, you're, you do a wonderful job. But I know what my standards are and I realize, and it probably is partly my personality and temperament wanting to be a perfectionist, but uh, anyway, I've realized how far short I fall. So Mr. Brooks' book, The Joy of Preaching, is a wonderful title. It's a good title. I, I like another book that I came across early in my ministry called The Joy of Discovery, which talks about the joy of Bible study, the joy of discovery. And I have to tell you, I enjoy my study a lot more than I enjoy pulpit ministry because, you know, I can take my time and I just feel like I'm not under the pressure there that I am when I'm behind the pulpit. But rather than thinking this morning about the joy of preaching, I think this passage, these preachers have come back from the mission that the Lord has given them. The 70 returned again, and they returned with joy. But I want you to notice Jesus says, don't rejoice in the success of your preaching efforts. In fact, what he says is rejoice in the grace of God. Rejoice that you belong to the Lord. So let's talk not about the joy of preaching this morning, but the preacher's greatest joy. And I think we could say the preacher's greatest joy is the Christian's greatest joy. We're not just talking about people who do what I do this morning. We're talking about each one of us. The preacher's greatest joy is the believer's greatest joy. For preachers are people too. Shepherds are sheep too. And that's an important point that needs to be kept in mind. The best way to think of ourselves is not in terms of what we do, but of how the Lord has blessed us. You see, my friends, I'm one of you. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ trying to live the Christian life. And though my position is more visible in public, perhaps, than yours is in the life of the church, I have to tell you, dear friends, that uh, in the final analysis, shepherds are sheep, too. And therefore, what is true for me is also true for you. Our greatest source of joy, my beloved, is not in the externals and the trappings and the actual performance of church life. How well we sing the songs, what kind of crowd we have, what our building looks like, and whether it is reputable and our church has a good reputation in the community. Our greatest source of joy must be in what the Lord has done for us. And that's the thought in the passage this morning. Notice that these 70 inexperienced young preachers, if we could say it like that, have returned from the mission that the Lord has given them, and they return with a glowing report. It says, they came back with joy, saying, Lord, even the spirits, the devils, are subject to us through thy name. 
So I want you to notice the first point this morning is there's a real tendency in each of our hearts to rejoice in the wrong things. Some people find joy in special experiences, certain things that we feel, certain warm spiritual feelings. Somebody says, oh, if I could just have that feeling that I had again during that particular episode in my life. Some people rejoice in the experiences of their lives. But may I suggest that feelings are like the tides, aren't they? They come and go. Feelings are not consistent from one day to the next. What did the hymn writer say? I dare not trust the sweetest frame. Somebody says, oh, I was in a wonderful frame of mind. I had a tender heart, a wonderful feeling, but he says that's not a worthy object of trust. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but my emotions are up and down. But some people rejoice in their feelings. Perhaps you've had unusual dreams before. I I believe God can communicate to people through a dream. Usually it's for that person's benefit primarily. I don't believe God gives dreams to people so that they can set public policy. Sometimes preachers, I've heard preachers say, I had a dream that this is what God wants our church to do. Well, that is always a very skeptical kind of perspective because it can't be validated. You know, the Word of God should be our guide, not a person's dreams. Your dream may be because you ate pepperonis too late at night, you know. It may be due to your diet or maybe some medicine that you're taking. But I do believe God can give you a special experience in which maybe you're going through a dark valley in your life and you have a special personal experience late at night in which God comes to you and gives you a sense of his presence and it gives you the strength you need. But may I say we shouldn't find our joy in special experiences like that. Somebody else says, well, I can't wait for the big meeting. We're having a visiting preacher from a distant state and he has a good reputation, he's very gifted. And oh, we had visitors and it was just such a wonderful time. And here are the pictures and I wish we could have the happiness that was our experience in the old days once again. Again, may I say, it's okay to enjoy that, but it's not an adequate source of joy. Somebody, when I was a boy, was asked the question, said, oh, you went to this big meeting. Was it a good meeting? And the person's response was, yes, it was a wonderful meeting. The pies were that thick. Well, I'd suggest, dear friends, that's not an adequate gauge of whether the meeting was blessed or not. Your belly may have been blessed, but uh, that's not what we're looking for. So there's a real tendency to rejoice in the wrong things. And preachers sometimes find joy in their pulpit performance. And I think that we could say that certain personality types are more inclined to do that than others. I mean, obviously a self-conscious person, an introvert who doesn't feel comfortable in front of people anyway, is more skeptical of his abilities and the type A personality that you know, is like Peter, they hit the ground running. Obviously, they're more prone, obviously, to think that because I've preached a sermon, that it was a wonderful thing, especially early on. I remember the first time somebody criticized one of my sermons, and it was just such a shock to me that someone didn't enjoy (laughs) my preaching. And when you're not geared toward being real self-reflective anyway, 
then there's a tendency to exaggerate your own particular performance. And then we're talking about the tendency to rejoice in the wrong things. Some people find joy in their particular talents or gifts. You'll notice that's one of the points made in this passage. They came back saying, Lord, the devils were subject to us. That is, when I preached, the demons turned tail and ran. The devils were subject to us. And Jesus, no doubt, had given them power to heal the sick and to cast out or to exercise demons. You notice verse 19 in our reading, Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions. Now, he's not talking about this Appalachian snake-handling idea, which is more akin to tempting God than it is a sign gift or a miracle from above. I mean, there's nothing spiritual about that. When he says, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you, he's not saying that we are promised immunity from all danger if we're faithful to the Lord. You read further in the book of Acts, And you find that those early apostles and disciples were not immune. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. Paul was beaten on several occasions. He was stoned one time and left outside the city dead. Those stones evidently hurt him. Stephen was martyred. So how does that square with this promise, nothing shall by any means hurt you? Well, no doubt he's talking about in the ultimate sense, men may kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. The point is that these early apostles had special gifts and talents. God gave them the ability to speak in tongues, to lay hands on the sick, and they would recover. Whether they encountered serpents or scorpions, none of that could stop their ministry. But yet, notice when they come back and say, Lord, we cast out devils. Even the devils were subject to us through thy name. Jesus says, in this, rejoice not. Because a person's gifts... Although they're given by God, they need to be cultivated, they need to be honed, they need to be kept sharp. And over time, of course, the gifts that a person has have a way of, like the rest of our lives, you know, diminishing in their effectiveness. You've probably heard preachers who were in their zenith, you know, in their heyday, and you thought, man, he could really preach. And then you heard them several years later, and you thought, well, I enjoyed it, but It wasn't as spectacular as I remember some years ago. And the reason for that is that, uh, you know, people get tired, minds get dull, voices get scratchy, and we're not at the top of our game forever. Nobody stays at the top for long. So don't rejoice in your experiences, in your performance, in your gifts, or in the successes of your ministry. Somebody says, oh, we have large crowds attending our church. And numerous converts. And the Lord has given me exceptional liberty in the pulpit. And the people are responding. Well, my friends, all of that is wonderful. Your gifts are a blessing. Your successes are wonderful. A positive pulpit performance is something to be thankful for. But in the final analysis, all of these things come and go. They will all change. That's my point. But here's something that will never change. Your names are written in heaven. So the preacher's greatest joy should not be his own talents and his own opportunities and his own performance and his own successes. Because verse 18 implies that success has the potential to puff someone up. Now this is a strange verse, verse 18. When they came back saying, Lord, even the devils were subject to us through thy name, Jesus replied, I beheld Satan as lightning 
fall from heaven. And I have to tell you that it doesn't matter how many commentaries you might have on your library shelves, each one will have a different twist or interpretation of this particular verse. And anybody that claims to know exactly what it's talking about is probably just pulling your leg because we're not told exactly what he's describing here. He could be saying, Jesus could be saying, when they said, Lord, when we preached the devils turned tail and ran, Jesus said, yes, I know exactly what you're saying. Even Satan himself, I watched as he fell from heaven. That is, your preaching had an impact on a cosmic scale. He could be using language to affirm their report of their own ministry. That could be what he's saying. Or he could be saying, and I suggest this is closer in my estimation to what he's doing, he could be saying, be careful. Because whatever success you've had has a tendency to puff you up like the devil was puffed up in pride and cast down early in the history of the universe. You see, when the disciples come back, remember these are young preachers. And I love young preachers. I used to be one. <laughs> Again, it was a rude awakening to me when I realized that uh, people didn't classify me in the category of young preachers anymore because in my mind, I'm still there. Anyway, um, young preachers are full of optimism and zeal, but often the lack of experience no offense intended, keeps them from properly analyzing or assessing their sermon. Again, I mentioned that when I would listen to my sermons early on, I thought they were wonderful. But as time has gone on, and I've heard men that are better at this than I am, and I've compared you know, their particular approach and communication techniques and so forth to mine, I've realized that, you know, that I'm probably on the farm club. I've never made it to the major leagues, and that's okay, you know, in the bush league. The point is that these preachers, after they've just been out on their first evangelistic campaign, the 70, 35 pairs, they've come back from this trip, and they come back all excited. It is possible that there's a bit of hyperbole in the report of their achievements, that they've exaggerated their own ministry efforts. And that's not unusual from those who lack experience. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.6 that you're not to ordain a novice that is a beginner, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now perhaps when Jesus says, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven, He's reminding these disciples that the devil was cast down because of his pride early on and be careful of being lifted up and puffed up in your assessment of your own ministry achievements. That's possibly what he's saying. I want you to notice now verses 19 and 20. And we learn from these verses, particularly verse 20, that the grace of God, not your special gifts, should be the preachers and every believers, for that matter, greatest joy. Jesus counsels his servants in verse 20 when he says, Notwithstanding in this rejoice not. I've given you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. You've come back from this preaching trip with this glowing report of success. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not. Don't find your joy in your pulpit efforts, in your experiences, in the success of your ministry, 
but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And my beloved, what Jesus is saying here is that the source of true joy is not in ministry success, but it's in the incredible reality that I myself belong to God, that you yourself belong to God. Yes, indeed, it's a privilege to minister. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to speak in the name of my Lord, to try to explain what his word means and to try to help God's people. But it's a far greater privilege, my beloved, to have one's name written in the registry of heaven. To belong to God. And what a wonderful verse this is. Because it points us to the highest privilege, the highest blessing. The highest privilege that you or I will ever receive is not to preach in front of tens of thousands or not to be involved in some great organization that furthers the cause of Christ. The greatest privilege that you or I will ever have, my beloved, is to belong to God's family as one of his children. That your names are written in heaven. Now what he's talking about here is the doctrine of election. And election is unfortunately a controversial idea in many Christian circles today. In fact, if you start talking about election, they think you're talking about the one that's coming up here in about 10 days, political elections. But you know, the Bible doctrine of election is talking about God's choice before the world began of a people out of Adam's fallen human race to be his family. It's God's sovereign decision to make people who were not his children by nature, his children by his grace. Your names are written in heaven. Now, I want you to think about that. Your names. You say, well, my name is in the phone book. And I am somebody important now because, look, I've been published. My name's in the phone book. I'm telling you your name's in a better place than that. You say, well, my name's in the state capitol on some computer system as a taxpayer, as a property owner, as a you know, citizen of this state. My name's on the voting registry. There's a better list than that even. I'm telling you, dear friends, your name, if you're a child of God, is in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you say, well, how did it get there? <laughs> Isn't that amazing that my name is known by God in heaven? And you say, well, how did it get there? You know, it's popular for people to say, you can write your own name in the Lamb's Book of Life if you will make a decision for Christ today. I'm telling you, that's far too late. This book has already been published. Those names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life according to Revelation 13.8 and Revelation 17.8 from the foundation of the world. That is, at the inception of the world, those names are already there. And how were they written there? They were written, my beloved, by God's sovereign purpose. They were written by his electing grace. You see, the doctrine of election is a Bible doctrine. Even Jesus taught it. Luke 18, Jesus said, Shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry unto him day and night? That's Luke 18, I think, verse 6 or 7, and it's in the red letters. Jesus said that God has an elect. John taught it. Revelation. John wrote the book of Revelation. He speaks of those whose names, again, are in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. In Revelation 20, verse 12, he talks about the last judgment. And he says that everyone whose name is in the Lamb's book of life will be spared judgment on that day. Their judgment has already taken place at the cross, you see. 
Jesus was judged for them, and therefore they will not be judged. But whosoever's name is not in the Lamb's book of life will be judged at the last day according to their works. So man's works will be responsible for condemning him to eternal punishment, but God's grace in Christ is the source of the salvation of those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Some of you may remember a movie some years ago called Schindler's List, and it's the story of Arthur Schindler, who was a German man who had a tender heart and conscience and who saw the atrocities that were taking place on the Jewish people. And uh, Schindler began to uh, use his position of influence and his personal fortune to rescue Jews that had been condemned to the concentration camps. He began to rescue them and bring them out and employ them in his business. And one by one, he saved them from death. And he saved hundreds, thousands. And he actually had a list in which he would learn of someone and he would go to find this person and then he would make arrangements to try to purchase their freedom. You know, I want them to come work for me in my company. It was actually a shell company, I think. Anyway, it's a wonderful story, but at the end, dear friends, although he had saved many, many Jewish people, yet at the end, he looked at his ring and his watch, and he said, oh, this could have bought 20 more. I could have saved so many more. But he had a list, and he was saving people who were on his list. But at the end, he felt like he hadn't done enough. I'm telling you, my beloved, our Heavenly Father, in his own grace and compassion, made a list before time began. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. He chose a people. He elected them. And he wrote their names on this list. And Jesus came in the fullness of time to pay the redemption price for every one of them. And I want to tell you, when he went back to heaven, he didn't go back saying, oh, I could have done more, and I wish that there were some I just couldn't quite get saved. But I'll tell you, he sat down with satisfaction because everyone that he came to save was saved. Jesus finished the work, and he did it successfully. And I want to tell you, all glory goes to God. All that the Father gave him before time began shall come to him, he says. And he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Now that's the doctrine of election. And may I suggest that the problem most people have with the doctrine of election is not that they can't understand it. It's easy enough to understand God chose a people to be his own. The problem they have is with the sovereignty of God. Does he have the right to choose? Because many people say, just a minute, you mean God's taken my eternal destiny out of my hands and he's put it in his own hands? Well, my beloved, let me ask you a question. Whose hands had you rather your eternal destiny be in? Your fickle, fallible hands that can't even maintain a grasp on your wealth and your income? I mean, it slips through your fingers. How have your investments, your 401ks, or IRAs done in the last 12 months? Many of you know the stock market's down 25%. It's just slipping through our fingers, isn't it? And you say, I can't even hold on to my own health. It's just an elusive thing. It's like nailing jello to the wall. You know, it's, it seems to just slip away from me. Had you rather your eternal safety and destiny be in your own hands or in the hands of a sovereign, infallible, perfect God who never has made a mistake. My beloved, may I say we're safe in the hands of our Heavenly Father. No man can pluck the sheep out of the good shepherd's hands. He's never lost a one, and he's not going to start now. 
He won't lose you. Yes, my beloved, Jesus Christ is the good shepherd, and we are secure, eternally secure, and preserved in the grace of God. So that's why Jesus says, don't rejoice in your ministry success, because success in ministry comes and goes. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's what Romans chapter 9 is talking about when the Apostle Paul says the children talking about Jacob and Esau being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. For it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. You know, many people don't even know Romans 9 is in the Bible. You say, well, I don't like that. That's one of those mysteries. It's not, again, so hard to understand. God chose. Instead of man choosing by his own free will, God chose by his free will. It's God's freedom, not man's freedom, that is determinative of eternal destiny. Because, my beloved, God is sovereign. Who really is sovereign in the universe? That's the question. Somebody says, well, God will never make a choice that violates man's free will. If that's true, who is really in the ultimate position? Who really has the last word? Who is really in ultimate control? Man is. I'm telling you, I don't believe in human sovereignty. I believe in divine sovereignty. I believe that God works his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no man can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? I'm telling you, our God, my beloved, does what he pleases, when he pleases, where he pleases, how he pleases, and to whom he pleases. And no man has the right to question him again or to say, what doest thou? And that's simply a way of saying he's God and you're not. To say that God is sovereign is to say that he's God and he runs things. So, my beloved, your names are written in heaven. That's something to rejoice in. That's something to be happy about in the sovereign grace of God, in his sovereign election. And Paul would say in Romans 9 again, when he preached election, that the response that he usually received was this. Is there unrighteousness with God? After God said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. For hath not the potter power over the clay? Over the same lump to make one vessel to honor and another to dishonor. The potter is sovereign, in other words. He decides what kind of vessel he's going to make it into. He says, when I preach this, people say God would be unfair if that was the case. And Paul anticipates that objection in Romans chapter 9 and asks the question, Is there unrighteousness therefore with God? And his answer is, God forbid. And any time you see that response, God forbid, in the Bible, it's one of the most emphatic forms of reply that could be present. He's saying, perish the thought. That's the farthest thing from anyone's imagination. Perish the thought. God cannot be unrighteous. God has the right to do as he pleases. That's what he's saying. For he's the potter, we're the clay. It's not the other way around. We're not here to manipulate him and to forge our own destiny in the future. I'm telling you, God predestinated the people before time began to be his own. He chose them in Christ. It's what Ephesians 1.4 means, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. And when were these names written in the Lamb's book of life? Before the world began. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God hath saved us. Who did the saving in this verse? God did. And called us with a holy calling, 
Not according to our works. It wasn't because we had done something to merit it or to earn it. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Over and over again in the Bible, you're going to learn of things that transpired before the world even began. And that's why I've said if your theology only goes back as far as the Garden of Eden when man had a free will, it doesn't go back far enough. <laughs> because Adam's freedom, Adam made the wrong choice and plunged himself and his entire posterity into a state of alienation from God. I'm telling you, our theology needs to go back into the council halls of eternity past when God made a covenant with himself that guaranteed, he made a list that guaranteed the final outcome of redemptive history that all that he intended to save will finally be housed safely in heaven without the loss of one. So he says, in your ministry successes, don't rejoice, but rather rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. Hebrews chapter 12 says that you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn whose names are written or enrolled in heaven. Philippians 4 verse 3, the apostle Paul says, Salute Euodius and Syntyche, those women who labored with me in the gospel whose names are written in heaven. Over and again, my friends, the Bible teaches us that God has a registry in which he has inscribed your names. And I want to tell you that when he wrote my name and your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, he didn't write it with pencil, with an eraser on the other end. You know, the thing about a pencil with an eraser is that you can turn it right over and you can rub it out. And if there was an eraser on the other end of that writing instrument, I tell you, God has had ample reason to erase my name from his book throughout my lifetime. But I'm telling you, he wrote those names in indelible ink. He graved them on the palms of his hands. He made them a part of himself. That's what Isaiah 49, 15 says. Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? The answer is, yea, they may forget. Yet I will not forget thee, for I have graven thee, engraved thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are perpetually before me. Yes, God will never forget his own. He will never break his covenant. He will never disinherit them. He will never cut them out of the will. For all that he intended to redeem my beloved will be safely housed in heaven at last. Having been redeemed, regenerated, your names are written in heaven. That's reason to rejoice this morning. That's reason to be happy in the Lord. Because whatever happens to you, whether you're successful or not successful in your life and in serving the Lord whether you preach with great liberty or whether you struggle to get your own name out without tripping over your words, whether you are successful and you see converts or whether it seems that your ministry falls by the wayside like the seed that fell on stony ground, whatever the outcome, success in ministry comes and goes, but this will never change. Your names are written in heaven. Now I want you to notice in verses 21 and 22, it proceeds to say that even Jesus rejoiced in the sovereignty of God in salvation. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced. Now notice the word joy and rejoice in this passage. The 70 returned again with joy. They're happy. And Jesus says, don't rejoice that the spirits were subject to you, but rather rejoice, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And in that very hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit. Now, the word rejoiced in verse 21 carries with it an intensity. It means he greatly rejoiced. 
And by the way, this is the only time in the gospel record where we hear of Jesus rejoicing. Now, it doesn't mean that he didn't rejoice on other occasions, but we're told specifically in this verse that he was very happy. He actually rejoiced greatly. He exulted in this truth. We do know that Jesus had a spirit of joy about his life. John chapter 15 says, These things have I spoken unto you in the world, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. So the idea that Jesus was a depressed kind of individual, perpetually in the doldrums, you know, negatively oriented, melancholic, is not accurate. Jesus describes his entire life as one of joy. My joy might remain in you. Jesus was a healthy-minded, happy individual, I think, as the dominant characteristic of his life. Yes, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But I mean, how could he say, my peace I give unto you? Let not your heart be... He had a certain tranquility and sense of the blessing of God in his life. We know that as his general spirit and temperament. But yet on this occasion, here we have the only episode in the gospel record in which it says Jesus rejoiced. He was happy on this occasion. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit. And notice what he's happy about. And it's very, very surprising. He said, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. So he is so happy that he bursts out in a prayer of thanksgiving and praise. I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And what he's about to say will surprise many, many professing Christians. Thank you, Father, and I'm so happy that you've hidden these things. What things? Well, the truth that he's just mentioned, your names are written in heaven. The doctrine of sovereign election. Thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent. Now, you talk about surprising. How are you going to interpret this verse? How are you going to explain it? Thank you, Father, that you've hidden these truths from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. For even so, Father, so it seemed good in thy sight. All things were delivered unto me of my Father. He's speaking as the mediator of the covenant. I've assumed a position in which the Father has delegated to me all things. And no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father. And who the Father is except or but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. I suggest this language teaches us that even Jesus rejoiced in the sovereignty of God in salvation. Even Jesus rejoiced in God's discriminating grace. Now, the word discriminate is not a popular word today because of ethnic tensions in popular culture. But I'm telling you, God has the right to distinguish between one and another. God is sovereign. He can say, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. God loved and chose Jacob. He didn't love nor choose Esau. He made a discriminating judgment, didn't he? He separated them. God has the right to distinguish, to discriminate in his grace. And by the way, my beloved, you have that right, and I do as well, Why do we have trouble with the idea that God has the right to do as he pleases? You know, I discriminated against all of the women of the world when I married Sister Lori. (laughs) 
That's right. I didn't choose them, but I did choose her. And she discriminated against all the men of the world by choosing me, right? You know, somebody says, God loves everybody equally and alike. You know, think about that for just a minute. God loves the whole human race. He loves everybody. If you're just another grain of sand, if you're just another, you know, fish in the barrel, you know, how would it, how would, what would you think of me if Sister Lori came to me and said, honey, do you love me? I said, honey, I love all the ladies. <laughs> That's not personal, is it? If I say, yeah, honey, I love all humanity. No, she wants my love to be particular, doesn't she? And personal and definite, that I love her. I'm telling you, God loves his children, but he doesn't love all men without exception. Now, he loves the world. You say, well, God so loved the world. That doesn't mean that he loves all men without exception who have lived, live now, or will live in the future. It means he loves all kinds of people without distinction. All without distinction, not all without exception. That he loves the rich and the poor. He loves males and females. He loves black and white. He loves Jews and Gentiles. He has people out of every nation, out of every kindred, out of every people and every tongue. That's what Revelation 5 verse 9 teaches. We're talking still about God's electing grace, his discriminating or sovereign grace, that God's sovereignty is seen in salvation. God makes the decisions and God makes the choice and God applies the work of Christ to a definite people and Jesus rejoiced in that. Now of all the things that might have made our Lord Jesus happy, notice what makes him the most happy and gave him reason to be thankful that God hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed it unto babes. For even so, Father, so it seemed good in thy sight. And I want to tell you there's not a better definition of divine sovereignty than that last expression. Even so, Father, so it seemed good in thy sight. God did things the way that pleased him. That's exactly what Paul teaches in Ephesians 1 when he says, Having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the, watch this, good pleasure of his will. It's not your will, not what pleased man. God didn't cater to making us happy. He did what pleased him because, again, he's the Lord. Jesus said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That very title, Lord of heaven and earth, speaks of the sovereignty of God. And Jesus says that the fact that these truths are hidden from some and revealed to others is evidence of God's sovereign grace and is reason to be thankful. Jesus rejoiced in the sovereign grace of God. Now, in verse 22, when he says, no man knows who the Son is but the Father, he said, just a minute, that's not true. I know who the Son is. But he means no one knows it initially and originally and intimately and perfectly. Only the Father has an intimate relationship with the Son. And no man knows who the Father is except the Son. He said, that's not true. I know who God is. But he means in this initial, organic, ontological sense, no one knows intimately, personally, with firsthand information who the Father is but the Son. That's because the Son and the Father are one. And he to whom the Son will reveal him. That's you and me. You see, we know the Lord today because it's been revealed to us. Here's the point of Jesus' words here. People can only believe because it's been revealed to them. 
I want to tell you, a person cannot know God on his own. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man, that is the way you were born, I was born, cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. By nature, my friends, we cannot know God, we cannot come to understand. No man knows the Father but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. We know him because he's been revealed in our hearts. John 8, 43 says, Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my words? Verse 47 says, He that is of God heareth God's words. You therefore hear them not, because you're not of God. What I'm saying this morning, my friend, is only by regenerating grace may someone come to know the Lord. Hebrews 8:10. You cannot teach every man his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me. The Lord says, from the least to the greatest, whether you're a little child or a university professor, whether you're poor or rich, whether you're male or female, from the least to the greatest, every child of God will be brought to know the Lord by the direct work of the Spirit of God in their heart. In other words, a person is only a believer because it pleased God to reveal it to him. That's what this passage is teaching. And I want to ask you a very pertinent question. How does this text... Thank you, Lord, that you've hidden it from some and revealed it to others. How does that text square with the popular idea in religious circles today that the preaching of the gospel is the instrument that God uses to quicken or regenerate men? That you have to hear the gospel and respond to it if you're going to be saved. So it falls on us to help the Lord populate heaven. Why would Jesus, if that's true, rejoice and thank God that it's hidden from some and revealed to others? The answer is that the purpose of the gospel is not to help the Lord save sinners. The gospel is not the instrument of regeneration. The gospel, my friends, is to inform the mind, to teach the minds of those whose hearts the Lord is already tendered and transformed by his saving grace. The gospel shines the light on the life and immortality that the Lord's already purchased for us on the cross, according to 2 Timothy 1 verse 10. Then I want you to notice verses 23 and 24, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. Many kings and prophets have desired to see the things that you see and to hear the things that you hear and have neither seen nor heard them. What he's saying here is that the source of joy is not only that your names are written in heaven and that God in his sovereign grace has given you an understanding. He's revealed to you who he is. But he's saying that it's a great source of joy and blessing to understand the gospel, to know and hear the truth, to see the things that you see. Many people have wanted to understand what you understand here this morning. Jesus says to his disciples, what is this passage teaching? It's teaching that there's no greater joy for the preacher in the pulpit or for the person in the pew than to belong to God's people through electing grace and the joy of knowing that the Lord has touched our hearts through his regenerating grace and brought us into a vital relationship with himself, and to see and understand the truth of his grace as it's revealed in the gospel. You say, oh, the joy of preaching, what a joy it is to preach. I'm telling you, it's a greater joy, my friends, to the preacher and to the believer in the pew as well to understand and believe that God is a God of grace who saved us. I belong to him, and whatever happens to my ministry or the church that I serve, nothing can change the fact that I'm a child of the king. I'm headed for heaven. He's done a work in my heart, 
and he's given me an understanding of that. That's reason to rejoice this morning, my beloved. Thank you.